0: 92nd Street Y online media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, Art and the Internet Age, Mapping the Effect of the Digital World on Our Cultural Past and Present, was recorded on February 9th, 2018, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y.
1: Welcome to the 92nd Street Y. My name is Allison Valcuse, and I am the director of the Art Center and Exhibitions here. And it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight for Art and the Internet Age mapping the effect of the digital world on our cultural past and present with panelists Tony Agi, Eric Coriel, Isabel Draves, moderated by Poppy Simpson. This talk is part of Uncommon Art and Technology, a 92 y mural exhibition of remixed and reimagined public domain art. The exhibition showcases works that remix and reconfigure art held in the public domain, also known as the commons. Uncommon explores what happens when paint becomes pixels and then something else entirely raising the questions in the process about the lines between ownership and originality, creator and consumer, inspiration and imitation. The group show features new work commissioned by mural from artists Eric Coriel, Bill Tamancas, David Galbrath, and Joaquin Trujillo, as well as intricate collages from artist Sally Gill. The work included spans collage, audio encoding, photographic fusion and digital manipulation. We've been delighted to work with Mural, a company working at the intersection of art and technology, as their work reinforces the mission of 92 i to engage, educate, and reach new audiences through art. We must also thank Mural for making this event and the exhibition possible. We are so grateful for their support. And now I'd like to invite Poppy Simpson, head of content and curation at Mural to the stage.
2: Hi. Um, Thank you to Alison, and thank you also to the 92Y. uh, And thank you for so eloquently introducing uh, this exhibition. Uh, Modern art has always been built on the blocks of its own history, but just not quite at the breakneck speed that we are currently experiencing. And this panel was really, uh, just in some small way, uh, a chance to kind of take stock of the current landscape um, and to consider how art, and the way we think about art is changing. Um, before I introduce our esteemed panelists, uh, I just wanted to take a moment to um, unpick this idea of the public domain, which I think is kind of important for, uh, uh, for us to understand the conversation that we're about to have. The public domain really uh, refers to material. It could be a song. It could be a book. It could be an artwork. It could be a photograph. That is free to use by anyone for any means. It's free of restrictions. Um, And the reason it's free of restrictions, it comes down to three things. Time. It was made a long time ago. Therefore, in the case of art, the artist died over 70 years ago, or the work was uh, published or created over 95 years ago. Um, uh, Government. That's why you can email the administration of Donald Trump and ask for information that is in the public domain under the Freedom of Information Act or whatever it's called in this country. Is it called the same thing? I don't know. And the third way uh, is dedication. You can say, I am an artist. I want my work to be used um, by anyone for any reason. Um, and that's as distinct from copyright. Copyrighted work is work that, uh, in order to use it in any way, you would still need to consult the artist, the author, the composer, or indeed their, their estate. So that's kind of where we are uh, in this discussion, because we're going to be talking about uh, some of the complexities around it tonight. Um, but let me introduce our panel. On my never good at this right is uh, Tony Aggie. He's the chief digital officer at the New York Public Library, where he uh, is in charge of their ongoing uh, digital transformation and making their extraordinary collections uh, accessible to the public. Um, And prior to that, he held a number of leadership positions at the BBC back in the UK, which is where I met him. UK. Um, and among his many accomplishments there, he founded or started uh, something called the iPlayer. And for those of you who don't know it, that's like Hulu before Hulu even knew that Hulu was going to be Hulu. Um, but it's also free, which is lovely. So thank you very much for being here. On my left is Isabel Draves, who confounds a short uh, biography. She is an entrepreneur, a startup consultant. She's been working at the crossroads of uh, uh, creative industries for over two decades. Um, She's also the founder of Creative Tech Week uh, here in New York City, which celebrates uh, innovation in creative technologies. And I really encourage you to uh, go in May and check it out. Um, And I first met Isabel at another organization that she founded known as LISA, Leaders in Software and Art. Um, which is an organization that brings together creatives, coders, artists, curators to share and celebrate their work. And I got there because of the man sitting next to Isabel, um, and that is Eric Coriel. He's an artist uh, who uses the urban landscape as a medium uh, in which to create site-specific installations. Uh, He's also a faculty member at the SVA and he is one of the artists who has created um, an original work for this exhibition um, that you're going to enjoy tonight. Um, So I really encourage you to look at his work. We also have the other artists here, so I really um, encourage you to talk to them uh, tonight. Briefly, Sally Gill. uh, Check out her absorbing, intricate uh, mixed media collages. Um, Get up and close. There's really loads to see. Joaquin Trujillo, who's got an extraordinary uh, photographic mosaic installation, I can't really describe it, uh, of his own work, and Frida Kahlo's. Bill Damoncus, an experimental filmmaker, gif maker, and stereoscopist. I don't know if I said that right, but he has reimagined uh, some of the iconic New Deal photographs, and last, but by no means least, David Galbraith, who has uh, created this evolving dynamic triptych, um, which uh, takes as its loose base, conveniently for the purposes of this talk, three images from the New York Public Library. I'm going to sit down now, I just realize I'm standing up. Um, So I'm going to start with, I want this discussion to be as as loose and discursive as possible, but I'm going to start with Tony. um, And this is where I'm going to start, the beginning, a beginning. It's not the beginning. Um, Over a decade ago, you were at the forefront of arguing that our cultural heritage should be made available to the public. Um, Why? Why did you think that was important? Who was it going to benefit? And uh, what did you think was going to happen?
0: Um, so, yeah, t- I mean, 10 years ago, by the way, wasn't, it wasn't really the forefront. It was just, you know, in, in the BBC, I was one of the first people to be arguing for something. It's people were uh, John Perry Barlow just died, and I would say he was probably at the, f- at the forefront. Um, but uh, I suppose the simplest answer is... Um, What's that answer that Willie Sutton gave when they asked him why he robbed banks? He said, because that's where the money is. Um, That's where the art is. That's where the stories are. That's where the culture is. And these custodians of uh, shared narrative um, have an obligation to make that work as freely uh, available to as many people as possible to inspire uh, and to delight. Um, I was at a particular institution, the BBC, and for about 80 years we had been recording... Uh, culture inadvertently. We've been making television programs and radio programs, which were usually very specifically about uh, a subject and had a purpose. But uh, inadvertently, of course, we were capturing more than just the programs. We were capturing the sentiment of the time. We were capturing the sounds and the uh, imagery of, uh, of each era. And uh, I think, you know, it was a, I felt there was an obligation on, on an institution like that to release that material under whatever permissive environment it could to the widest number of people to be able to uh, allow all sorts of creative explorations, which include challenging our assumptions of the past. Because only through our archives are we able to really look back and see whether the assertions that were made at the time have either, you know, stood the test of time. Um, or were a genuine reflection of what was actually taking place. So whether you're asking Mr. Trump to open archives today, or you're asking the BBC to show what happened during certain key moments in British history, I think there is an obligation those organisations to allow particularly narr- narrators and artists to be able to explore that material.
2: And that's a clear cultural win um, that you're talking about, but you used that quote and you said that's where the money, the money is. Did you think that there was a commercial reason to do it as well?
0: Um, so uh, so the, the short answer is obviously yes. Right? To, to, uh, everything I'm now going to say is going to sound like the answer isn't yes. But the, uh, the short answer is obviously yes. Um, but I've had the luxury of working in organisations that have never needed to make money. And that is, you know, it's a very rare luxury, which do you kind of, only because I've worked in places like Virgin and Guardian newspapers, do you realise what a luxury it is to be able to spend your entire life working, doing the things you believe in, where you don't actually ever have to make any money. And the BBC is funded, and if you know that, funded by a compulsory uh, license fee. Every household who has a television or a radio television in Britain has to pay this uh, this fee. So you know, it, I felt that it behoved the BBC not to try and make money, but to create the conditions by which others could have access to that material. And if that turned into opportunities for revenue, then so be it. And I didn't believe the BBC should stand in the way of that or even benefit from that.
2: So the idea being that by releasing this uh, stuff, for want of a better (laughs) term, into the public sphere, if not necessarily the public domain, Mm -hmm. um, other people could build on top of it, which leads quite nicely to something I was hoping that Isabel could tell us about, which is kind of concomitant to this idea um, that institutions... that's, thats grown in, in uh, its support has grown, um, and significant progress has been made. Alongside that, there was also, you know, from the early 2000s, this kind of interest in open source technology, it, open source artwork, and the kind of development of this idea of the creative commons. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of set the scene for us um, in that respect. Sure. Um, so when I, when I
3: first got Uh, involved with the internet which was about 1994 um, I started learning about this concept of open source as it applies to writing software so it's called free software uh, not necessarily because you wouldn't have to pay for it if you bought it but because the recipe is open and available and when the when when the code that somebody or a team of people has written um, is viewable instead of proprietary and hidden, then other people can come and find the flaws in it. They can find the mistakes in it. They can build upon it and make another, uh, a, a fork it's called as the, as the path uh, diverges, and they can make even better things than the original thing was made. And this concept of building on the shoulders of giants, uh, I found really appealing. Um, and then in the early uh, 2000s, I started learning about Creative Commons, which is a similar kind of idea for media, where musicians and artists and writers, instead of automatically putting something into, their, um, in, into, the, into, the, into copyright, can, could say, I want this to be available for other people to sample or for other people to build on top of. Um, And this Creative Commons licensing is a license that goes on top of a regular copyright that says, you know, I want other people to be able to use this, but maybe not for commercial use. Or um, they can use it, and even for commercial use, as long as they credit me. That's called the attribution side. So there there are a bunch of different layers that you can put on top of a regular uh, copyright through
2: Creative Commons licensing. And as I understand it, it's also... There's quite a. It's almost political the movement. That there's this belief that we should be building this uh, exciting new free world it, it where d- definitely. we're going to knock down existing copyright uh, restrictions. We're going to change the landscape.
3: Ab- ab- absolutely. So, so Lawrence Lessig, who who started Creative Commons, um, and then there's certainly people in this room who know more about this than I do, um, but. Um, he's definitely a crusader uh, behind this idea of information wants to be free. And in in particular, if anyone's heard of uh, Aaron Schwartz, He felt very strongly that government-funded research that was put together by uh, teams of students in universities and their professors should be something that was freely available to the public and not something that you would have to pay a big subscription to one of the subscription services to use. Um, And he was... um, And he he was caught downloading this information to set it free um, and and ended up committing suicide sadly um, because of the pressure of being uh, under arrest and and facing a long jail term. So people feel as strongly about setting information free as they do about you know, setting free uh, an animal that's being mistreated, for example. So there, it, there is a political movement behind this notion that you know I, I sh- if I'm making, if I'm singing a song, I should be able to sing Happy Birthday in a restaurant without having to pay a royalty to the person who owns the song. Like if you guys, if you've been to TGI Fridays or one of these restaurants that has their own special birthday song, that's because they can't legally sing happy birthday because it's copyrighted. So it, it is a political um, movement and idea, for sure.
2: So we'll get back to some of the challenges that Creative Commons and that idea has uh, run into. Um, but before I come to Eric, I'm not ignoring you, I promise. Um, I wanted to ask Tony, what was the single greatest challenge, you think? Uh, that this idea of, of opening up access to our cultural heritage was the single biggest thing that kind of uh, has slowed the progress. Because huge progress has been made. I mean, you know, institutions are beginning to, New York Public Libraries one, the Met, LACMA, MoMA, in, in England, there's, in Europe, there, there are plenty. But what's stopping uh, this kind of move forward?
0: Uh, I think back then would have been lack of interest. I think the the institutions just kind of weren't engaged. They didn't think it was interesting. They didn't think it was useful. They didn't think the public were interested in it. Um, I think um, that was kind of a a way of disguising a kind of a desire not to do it because you're a, a custodian, a gatekeeper. Your value is that you're the only person that has something, the only person that can do something. And so the idea of opening it up freely, they thought the public were a bit too stupid to be able to, you know, have access to the. I mean, you know, so but I think you know the institution kind of uh, reluctance would probably be the first one, and I think the most obvious one is copyright, because particularly in a place like the BBC, uh, a BBC, there's almost nothing that is that anybody will make that has no, uh, not, does not include a piece of work by somebody else. The the music, the scenes, the costumes, the. Uh, shots in the background. So it's kind of unpicking all of the different, the complexity of the rights framework. So I think kind of inertia and ambivalence by the institutions, which is really disguising a a a, a desire to retain control and then issues around copyright and and the risk of uh, associated with that.
2: Eric, in my conversations with you, it has become clear that you're not particularly exercised by the issues of, well, by public domain and copyright. Um, does that mean you're like, cool, take my work, make it your own, post it wherever you want? Yeah. Um, or, is it a, or is it a different sort of uh, uh, disinterest?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I spend roughly zero seconds a day thinking about copyright and uh, infringement and um, all the other kinds of bylaws that co- go around in that world. So, yeah, in the sense where it's not really a part of my uh, my landscape yet, right? Um, so yeah, I don't really think about it. I don't really have that much I don't think I have that much um, of interest to say about it. as an artist working um, in the digital realm, and I think this goes for a lot of artists in the in the digital realm, it's between the you know between making new work and trying to kind of push boundaries. The, the rules of um, you know, whatever may or may not be in the public domain really kind of, I think for me at least, come pretty low down the prior- on the priority list of what I'm thinking about when I'm making work. But
2: what about your copyright?
4: Yeah, so and it, and, and in distributing my work, it's not like I am a cop- copyright anarchist and I want to do away with all rules and regulations. I don't, I'm not advocating for that. And yes, I would be upset if I saw something that I had done with somebody else's name on it, or they had made a poster and they were selling it for lots of money, or even a little, about a, a little bit of money. So you haven't noticed that your work says Poppy Simpson below? Oh it Oh no! The wall Did label. you change that? <laughs> okay, well, I haven't noticed. That's good on you, though. Um, so uh, you know, I, so there could be a few explanations here. I could be naive, right? Because I, I haven't been taken advantage of yet. Um, probably likely. Or I could, um, you know, I just also I think in the, in the list of things that you are um, thinking about as an artist, it's just, it's just low down there. Like you are trying to come up with new ideas, push different mediums, and whatever it takes to do that typically is what you're gonna do. And if you get caught, well then you deal with it later, right, uh, easier to ask for forgiveness later than for permission now or however that goes. But
2: Isabel, Correct me if I, well, I, I think that that is a, a dangerous stance to take in the current landscape, because I think that artists need to be, I mean, I agree with the idea of copyright. I, I agree with the idea that artists need to be remunerated. that your, your work needs to be protected, however frustrating some of the existing copyright laws might be, but it seems to me that artists need to increasingly be uh, thinking about engaging with these kind of ideas. I, I think it's worthwhile to think about from two perspectives. One
3: is, if you set your art free, you have a massive distribution opportunity. If you, if you start leaking it out to the world of VJs and um, co- people who do collage, people who do fashion and you say, hey, do you want to use my prints for your new dresses or, um, if, 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 you, if you set it free, it could, it could, ha- it could spread globally with, the, if, it's, if it's popular and people wanna use it. And the thing is, people will still come back to you. There, there are certain works that are like true Eric Coriel, you can recognize that they're Eric Coriel, and you see them all over the world on, peop, on you know, Stella McCartney's dresses and on the wallpaper at the gap or something, right, that people will come back to you because you're that guy who made that thing, and they'll order something custom from you that had to come from you that was not um, Creative Commons licensed. So that's, it's a potential distribution opportunity. Now, on the flip side, if you're thinking about sort of closely guarding your copyright, there's a, there's a strong rationale for that as well. Um, There are a lot of people right now, a small but growing movement of people that are leveraging the blockchain to make these trading cards um, that are traded with Ethereum uh, or Bitcoin. And because they're provably rare, people are literally buying these animated GIFs uh, which you could make a. Million copies of, and anyone could have one on their computer, but they're buying it for forty thousand dollars, and that's not even a joke because it's provably rare because it's on the blockchain. So it has this um,
2: ledger. Could that's, you could you just uh, explain for just in case that we have um, some? <laughs> no, I mean all my all, my all that is spoken about in my company is the blockchain at the moment. But um, could you just give us a sort of a layman's uh, um, overview of that? So
3: so I I can try. It's it's also new to me. Um, But I've just started learning about it. So this concept of the blockchain is basically a ledger, which is an accounting system. And every time there's an entry, um, this entry is made in this ledger. But the thing that's different about the ledger is it's not like kept on Poppy's uh, hard drive. It's, It's distributed. So it's like a bunch of different nodes that are all keeping track of this ledger. And if somebody tried to alter it or mess with it or steal from it, um, the other accounts keep it honest because you can't change the accounting system in a million places, (laughs) right? If you just changed it in one, that would be um, not considered a legit, Uh, Ledger entry, so my understanding of it is that this is how Bitcoin uh, the digital currency I guess it's called has been um, built and how other Cryptocurrencies have been built uh, like Ethereum. and then on top of this people have started to make what I sort of think of as trading cards around games um, there's something called Crypto Kitties that has little cats. There's the rare Pepe that has the little f- green frogs. And this, in, among the community, this is termed rare art. And it is now being traded for real dollar amounts because it's provably rare the way gold or
2: diamonds or um, paper currency is rare. So what's interesting me about about this discussion is that you have this on the one sense you have this idea of like make it make it free let's you know uh, reinterpret or re understand our past let's uh, create artwork for all let's um, you know you, you make work in in public s- um, spaces um, but it seems to me that whilst there's this kind of uh, current of thought around openness. The art world still operates in many <laughs> the same way, where the original um, and the kind of scarcity model—it's the original, or it's the limited edition, or it's you know uh, an open edition of prints, whatever it is—that still seems to me to be the kind of way uh, that that things operate. And I'm interested, Eric. Uh, do you think that that's how because Digital artists, in particular, face this really weird conundrum. Whereas it is difficult to hold on to your original, by its very nature. Um, can you perhaps talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think as a as a digital as a digital artist, yeah, the idea of having an original is obviously very complicated. And I think the expectations for holding on to an original digital file are are low to non-existent at this point. So, to, you know, in my mind, like any artist, you, you want to get paid for your work. And the idea that um, as a digital artist, it's very hard, if, you know, if not uh, outright impossible, to kind of get paid in this, where we are right now in the, in the digital landscape, um, to get paid for your work, right, because of all the, all the issues you just mentioned. So I think from where I'm standing and where I think a lot of my peer artists are at this point, the expectations are so low um, of guaranteeing an original and getting paid on that model, on the current model, that they may as well be non-existent, right? We have to look for alternative ways of, you know, uh, monetizing this kind of work because I don't think the current way is going to do it.
2: So maybe that's why you all did some work with me.
4: <laughs> exactly, that's one of, one of the reasons. No, I mean, it's true. Like, you know, the mural platform, which is out in the gallery, which we'll all go and see afterwards, it is one of the very few ways in which digital artists these days are getting paid, like like bottom line, period. Um, getting commissioned to make work for a digital platform as a digital artist is wholly refreshing. And, um, you know, n- and much, much needed, I think, in the community. So those kinds of opportunities would be, yes, another revenue stream for an artist.
2: I want to kind of flip the conversation a little bit. We had an interesting conversation over lunch the other day. And you had a particular kind of interest in this, in this show. Yeah. Can you perhaps talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, so in the show, in the show uh, just next door, you'll see digital, um, digital works literally juxtaposed next to their analog equivalents, right? So if you're a photographer, the traditional model for a photographer is you. You take a picture, and these days you're really taking it mostly on a digital camera, but then you, you know, and you rework it however you rework it, and you print it out, right, and you make a limited edition of prints. That is the analog model. Um, A digital model is something very different, right, so what you'll see is a kind of an analog or, you know, traditional photograph juxtaposed literally right next to a, a digital version from the same photographer, you know, same series of work, and in my mind, you, you get to see these two and, and uh, you get to judge, I think, and you get to make a determination about which one do you think is, has more integrity to the original format, the original format in this case being a digital camera, right? So, um, And you get to see, like, I think there are a lot of legitimate questions that come up, like, is this the future of art in the home? Like, are we going to be looking, now that the means of production have shifted to digital... Um, Methods, digital camera, for example, does that mean or should it mean or should it not mean that the best way of displaying that in the home, in the museum, in the wherever should be digital in nature as well? So I think that's what you get to see and that's the kind of question that it raises for me.
2: I think also the interesting thing about having this kind of uh, um, mixed ecosystem in this particular exhibition is it makes me think about that that kind of question that has exercised people for for over a century which is does uh, any form of reproduction so walter benjamin in the 1930s mechanical reproduction you know what does that do for the aura of the original you had berger john berger in the 1970s talking about now that we've got the advent of photography and we can just literally take a copy of any image, what does that mean? Does it devalue the, the, ima- the, the image? Or does it, as we've been discussing, actually create new uh, and creative uh, kind of opportunities? Um, do you worry about that?
4: No, I don't. Um, I think the thing that, the, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the thing I worry about is, like, can I get paid for my work? So that's, t- that's kind of top of mind. And this issue of the original is, not important to me. Like, if if I can get paid and it's no longer an original or I'm not selling the original, I I don't care. Tiny thoughts?
0: Well, I I mean, annoying as it's going to sound, I think these are both very very refreshing views that are coming from that side of the panel. And it's very difficult for me to find something that I absolutely disagree with. But I've worked uh, most of my life in uh, most of my career in two organizations, the BBC and now the New York Public Library, whose job is to distribute um, Art and culture as widely as possible for uh, for the lowest possible price. I mean, they're not; neither of them are free. You pay for the library for your tax, and the libra- and the BBC is paid through a license fee. But they try and make it free at the point of use. Um, and I think that the opportunity that digital world uh, kind of uh, promises to those kinds of organisations is to is to help with that, is to make material even more widely available. But I think the challenge is to recognise the obligation you have to the artist to ensure that they're recompensed, because I think it's far too easy to kind of look at the means of distribution as the purpose, rather than actually the art itself as the the, the point of our activity.
2: I want to open it up to questions in a minute, even though it feels like we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Um, but we've spoken abo- a lot about kind of you know, sort of logistical or infrastructural type things. And when I spoke to you the other day, I said, how important do you think this is? in terms of uh, like the creative world. And you, you said, yes, it's important, but creators are always going to make, regardless of, of like the conditions, which is, I think, what um, Eric was really talking about. Um, what is it that you have loved working about with digital? Uh, digital artists and creative technology. Um, Yeah, that's kind of a slam dunk. Sorry. Um, I'm
3: (laughs) super passionate about uh, software and electronic art, digital art, and the reason is because it's always changing and it's impossible to get bored. So just when you've seen a lot of generative art video, for example, you might discover a whole new world of 3D printed, objects that are made um, in, in software, and then uh, become sculpture. And as soon as you've started to really experience a lot of that, you might discover a new experience in virtual reality where you're immersed in a new world. Um, and just when you kind of get a handle on that, you discover that people are trading these. Um, Crypto kitties. Crypto kitties. <laughs> um and and spending way more money <laughs> than they're spending buying uh paintings at craft fairs for example um it's it's just always new and it's really uh pushing the envelope all the time and so if you're the t- if you're the type of person that like always wants to be thinking about a new thing which is happens to be my brain it's perfection <laughs>
2: And I think the other thing that's worth um, just mentioning before we open up to questions, and again, something that we discussed, is that a lot of these artists working in these technologies are doing more innovative and creative things than, you know, the software companies and startups that we hear, uh, that we hear about. They're often at the forefront of technologies and ideas uh, that kind of then make it into the mainstream. A- a- agreed.
3: I, th- I think of software and electronic art as like the free R&D department of tech startups um, because these artists are not thinking, I mean, despite what Eric said, they're not necessarily thinking about getting paid. I think you would be doing your art it- with a full-time job also, if you couldn't make money from your art, you'd still be making your art because the, it, it's, it's the passion that comes from within. So I, I think that um, unlike a startup where you have to get some venture capital behind you or after a while you're going to peter out or you have to start selling and getting a revenue stream or after a while you're going to have to shut down, uh, software and electronic art kind of never gives up. It's constantly experimental and it's... Um, always thinking about, you know, what could be the potential problems of a world where everybody is, has their VR headset on all the time, you know, or what, what could be the issues with having, uh, computers making art. Um, I mean, there are just all kinds of interesting questions that, They're not necessarily funded, but they're being thought of
2: all the time by artists. And lastly, Tony, what do you think the future holds? Do you see a kind of um, uh, a brave new world where an institution like the New York Public Library, who has done such sterling work in making their collections um, available, do you see that forming the basis of uh, creating new commercial opportunities? Uh, for software companies, artists? Um, is that why you continue um, to to kind of make this uh, material available?
0: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, in, in the, in the short answer is I hope so. I mean, we, you know, we, I, if you're a researcher, you come to the New York Public Library, you want to write a play, you want to write a book, you want to create a speed of art, we'll give you the material that we have there. We'll let you have free access to it. You can refer to it, you can learn from it and as long as you stay within the law uh, you can even use pieces of it within your work, it's exactly what we're for, so I would hope that the New York Public Library will continue to make material available to artists to produce uh, ever more original and important work
2: Thank you all very much, I think we're going to open it up for the last uh, 10-15 minutes for some questions I think there's a roving, is there a roving mic? I don't know if there's a roving mic I might just be the roving mic, oh no, okay if, if you ask a question I'll repeat it
5: yeah, I'm, I'm a consumer because I got my mural canvas. So I'm kind of interested in the process and the criterion used in this kind of brave new world of um, the commons. I guess you're it as a curator. How, we, how are you different from the model in patronage? A monarch of Spain causes something, commissions something. Mm-hmm. Are there criteria? Well, the advisors sometimes will have criteria. What process do you go through? What criteria? What peer group? Do you commission work? Do you go for cheap work? What do you do?
2: <laughs> I'm going to repeat the question because this is being recorded. Um, the question was around how does uh, an organization like Mural? Uh, what's its curatorial st- strategy, really, is what you're asking. How does it, uh, um, how does it work? How do we select work? Um, and then on top of that, you were saying, what's, does it have anything to do with kind of the, the old uh, model of patronage? Um, so I'll be quick. Um, so our curatorial strategy is much the same as any kind of large cultural <laughs> institution, which is we want to show works both canon- canonical and unknown classical to the contemporary. Um, And uh, we want to highlight underrepresented stories, reinterpret existing ones. And we want to find interesting and exciting new work. My title is head of curation, but I'm not a typical curator in the sense that my individual perspective is not necessarily what's important. We are a commercial public product. And therefore, those decisions about what we Show in our and what we uh, license and what we commission is also about thinking about a wide, broad audience. That's why I'm medium agnostic. You're a painter, great. You're a digital artist who's going to create a native piece, awesome. Bring it on. That's where uh, that's that's the kind of um, basic answer to your question. And it, it's interesting that you mentioned the the word patronage. I think I like to think of you as a patron of the arts. That's the, that's the model now. Because as we ask you to subscribe to a service that we then share that revenue with artists, that makes you the patron. And so instead of it being the Pope, instead of it being uh, the Vasari family, instead of it being whoever in the Renaissance, maybe it's now a distributed network of millions and millions and millions of people. Ask me next year. (laughs) We're working it out. We're working it out. It's a new model. We are not. uh, Our CEO always says we're not. We're not drawing water from a well. We're digging a new one. Another question. Oh, come on, Mr. Galbraith. So let me um, repeat the question. Help. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think the question was: uh, We've, we've, uh, mechanical, photographic, digital reproduction has done so much to kind of uh, change our understanding of the original, but blockchain seems to be the revenge of. That um, and your question was around how do we conceive of value um, in this kind of very complicated landscape. Who wants to jump in first? Because it's not going to be me.
3: I I, <laughs> I, I want to grab that just um, from the perspective of these um, this rare art that's being traded um, on the blockchain right now, uh, because there is a. Um, there is a very clear and succinct method of valuing these works. They are valued by how much people will pay for them. And so you if if there's an auction for example, and you say that you'll pay um, you know three Ethereum and somebody else says they'll pay five Ethereum and you get up to uh, 300 Ethereum, that's um, that's the price. <laughs> so there's a, it's kind of a popularity contest in a way where the market is determining the price of these works and people will attempt to buy an, an iteration of one of these gifts from somebody else and the person will sell it or not sell it depending if the uh, price offered is high enough. Yeah. I have
5: a question, because I'm confused. Being like, say, a photographer, right? So if you keep your work, say, off the web, and you only put it in this blockchain, is that what you're referring to when you,
2: you know, it's sort of like, is it just where people come and take a look at something? I think of it as the certificate of authentication, just the written one like, however you authenticate your work right now, it's a digital authentication. That's essentially what we're talking about. Um, we, I, I can expand, but I think Tony had some ideas about this revenge of the...
0: Unfortunately, in that moment, you've actually said between the pair of you exactly what I was going to say, <laughs> which is, I think, uh, the counter-side to the commercial value is the priceless value of authenticity and veracity. And I think if the blockchain can do that, then I think there is significant value because not everything is uh, a work of art that needs to be traded. Actually, to be able to go back over a long period of time and to, uh, to verify that certain statements either are as true as they can be believed to be true, I think has significant value for culture. Which is provenance, right?
2: Yes. Provenance, yeah. And provenance is something that you care about That's as cool. a librarian. A yeah. Provenance,
3: the, the idea of where did something come from, or who owned it uh, before? Um, to make sure that it's actually not a fake. But just to to address your question about, so say you're a photographer or you're an artist and you want to sort of get involved in this blockchain business, uh, there are multiple layers to it. So so part of it is simply a smart contract, which is uh, just legalese, essentially, that guides how your work could be used, how many... uh, how many prints there are of it. Is it? Is it, this is number one of five, or this is number 97 of 300 uh, prints of this? Um, but there are also starting to be specific networks uh, or marketplaces for certain kinds of art. So this CryptoKitties is one, the Rare Pepes is another. And if you go on Rare Pepes, you're not gonna see somebody's photography, you're gonna see this specific topic which is people make the little green frog. And, and by the way, Sounds brilliant. it is not related to the, um, uh, the like, n- white nationalist, uh, concept of this Pepe if you've if you've heard about that meme they they started in the same place and then they forked off separately so the, the rare pepe art people are very offended if you bring up the white nationalist we'll, we'll try pepe not to bring
2: the uh, thing. the white nationalist thing up. Yes. I'm going to I'm going to there's a couple Just of questions that know. were yeah. here. I'm going to come to you afterwards. Yes.
4: of the art or how do you kind of come to uh, an agreement with artists about how much
2: they'll for their work? So the first thing to say is that we pay for everything if if we need to. I mean, if we obviously have um, works in the public domain as well. Um, and we curate those. And that's really, in terms of a subscription value, that's what you're, um, that kind of uh We bring you the highlights from the New York Public Library. So you're not going to, uh, you know, we're going to bring that for you. We, we license or pay for every work. And uh, we will likely have some sort of hybrid model, uh, a Spotify, but also probably something more along the lines of an Apple TV, where there's different ways to get involved in. But um, I would be lying if I said that we, had, um, this is, we, are, we are learning as we go. Um, but the great thing about it is that we get to learn with artists. Uh, They get to help us work out that model. The one major difference between Spotify, the music world, and the art world that you have to remember is the art world, uh, well, it has even more complicated copyright things, because you've got publishers and record labels and all sorts of things. But um, the art world kind of basically ultimately goes up to about 10 funnels. It's the, record, the large record companies and, the, and uh, you know, uh, people who own huge archives. When we're dealing with artists, sure, we can deal with an image library, but we're also dealing one-to-one. So the chance to get revenue that's meaningful is much higher because there's no middleman. There's not, a, there's not someone to, to necessarily go through. I hope that answers the question. This gentleman here. There is no such thing as a stupid question. Is uh, a blockchain auction is is a digital version of a Christie's or a Sotheby's auction or something like that? Not yet, but there will be. Do you agree? Uh,
3: at, at the blockchain art, rare art auction that I attended a few weeks ago, there were definitely people there from Christie's and Sotheby's and Phillips, watching very closely what was going on.
2: And I think you only have to think about the auction world uh, a couple of decades ago and how it dealt with photography. It didn't know what to do with it, and now it's you know it's a, a huge part of their of their business. So I think these kinds of developments. I mean, would, would you agree? I mean, I, I, how how is digital wor- work dealt with with auction? Uh,
4: I don't I don't really know. Um, <laughs> I could talk about how I would like it to be dealt with. You know, like I think that blockchain, for example, as, an, as my interest in it, is aside from what we've all been talking about, the, the authenticity of the original and bringing that ancient paradigm into the digital world, which I think is much needed. I think that there, as Isabel hinted at earlier, there's this idea of smart contracts. And so maybe, you know, one of the things that artists have bemoaned, I think, for for decades, if not centuries, is the fact that you create an original, right, and then Whole, you're, and you're lucky enough to sell that original painting, let's say, um, and you get a, a you get the revenue from that sale, right? But then that's where that revenue stream ends, done forever. Whereas other collectors, for example, would normally then benefit from reselling your work, right? And then you and then as the artist, you are left out in the cold. So if you sell your work for a, a, a r- small amount of money, and then ten years, fifteen years later. The, you become more known and popular and then your work gets resold and resold and winds up at Christie's or Sotheby's at auction for lots of money. Um, unlike musicians who tend to get royalties if they create you know, a, a hit for a long time or publishers of, or authors or anything like that, typically visual artists have been left out of that debate because of, of the difficulties of ensuring those kinds of transactions. So. You know, as a digital artist, I think one of the things that, that is promising would be the idea of like, oh, maybe we can also get royalties um, in perpetuity or however it's framed for our work with these new technologies.
2: I think we've got, probably got one t- time for one more question. We've got two. Maybe we'll try and do it. One more keen. Oh, three. Okay.
1: The, well, question, the price lemme, lemme, Let sorry.
2: me repeat the question, and I forgot the Spotify question as well, so I must do that because we're doing a podcast. Um, the, the question is, uh, on the blockchain, does the price remain the same? So you have
3: the, uh, the, the exchange rate, um, which, which varies, and with cryptocurrency, it varies dramatically. It's completely unreliable. It's the riskiest currency probably there is right now. And the price in dollars varies. So the dollar amount that these cards, if you bought them uh, three weeks ago at the auction that I attended for $40,000 worth of uh, Ethereum, uh, and now the price of the coin has plummeted, now it might just be worth $5,000 if it's gone down that much in value. So the same way that you would you know, exchange your money into euros or yen.
2: But I might be wrong, but I think your question is also asking, like, if you were an artist and you employed whatever version of the blockchain that we you, that might be developed, do you have the opportunity to then shift the price of your work?
3: Uh, well, I mean, I think there, the, the, there are several different questions going on at the same time with that Question right so you can have a you can have a smart my understanding is you can have a smart contract Associated with your art piece that guides the copyright Um, That's not related to the price that somebody might want to pay for it at auction I mean, I I can't I mean I could go on eBay and say that I wanted I'm not gonna sell my teapot unless people pay me at least $35 (coughs) but if nobody wants to pay 60 dollars i can't like suddenly make people pay 60 dollars so i mean an auction is an auction. The,
2: auction the auction uh notion of the auction is still the same i think i think as my understanding of it and i may be wrong if it did get got sold um if it and the the secondary market decided that it was of greater value at than its original sale yes i think it's just about finding the sale i'm going to actually I'll, I'll let you we're all here, you can ask again. There was a lady behind. So this is a question like really rests my brain, and it's a question for you. Yeah. Um, I, my understanding is nowadays for artists, internet is a pretty scary and evil place. Right. So your question, so your quest- your quest- yeah, sorry. As a head of this huge platform, mm-hmm. how is, uh, what, what do you
1: pick? Do you pick who has more viewers, or do you think, like, what is, what is that thing, like, you go and you're like, I'm going to pick
2: you and I'm going to advertise you as an artist and I'm going to give you this opportunity. So the question, the question is around, uh, uh, well, the question is really around taste. Um, but uh, what you're asking is like how do how do I decide um, uh, or my team decide what what is what is worth? Um, I think probably in the same way um, as when I answered this gentleman, um, I think probably in the same way that a public institution or a commercial gallery does a, a, a number of different factors. Um, But I think what's interesting about your question, and the one thing that I'd like to say, is that a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, about originality, about value, and about all of these things, actually comes down to taste, or at least the ability for certain people to prescribe, or certain institutions, or galleries, or exhibitions, or culture in general, to to say, this good, this bad. And to be honest, my hope with Mural is that we don't do that. That we allow uh, the audience, 90% of whom do not buy, uh, you know, in the, what we would typically call the art world. We would allow them to drive those decision making, that decision making gen- ultimately. And I'm finally going to end with Joaquin, who's over there. Thank you, Tony.
5: So basically, when I decided to be part of this exhibition and part of Miro, I was really worried about copyrights. You know, and I mean, this this question is so big. But basically, what I what I'm about to say is that I know nothing about digital, become digitizing my work or doing uh, work digital like the other artists do. But I was what I, to me what I want to add to this is you cannot help what someone can go to Instagram, Facebook. Website and download one of your images and they can print it put it in their house or they can copy it You know and it happens it happens sometimes where you see your work being copied color by color subject by subject and When you're just one individual you don't have the money to fight that, you know So then when I was invited to do this I'm like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to able to express myself in a different way but what I'm, to me is really, that I'm really grateful that you let me do is that I still do it through my media. My my media was still, it was digitized, but I still printed it, you know? So I think though, being original or not being original, it really, like that line is being is so far away, the horizon is like a dot, you know? I'm The work that I give you was shot eight by 10, eight by 10 film, I process it myself by hand, and then the second, Work that I give you I shout-out with my iPhone. So I think it's the use that we give to all this and the value that we all give to this whole medium.
2: So that is a really lovely place to end. But I'm going to do a quick fire round for our remaining panelists. We can share a mic, Tony, because I'm a sharing kind of person. Um, uh, we We touched on this idea of the original. And we kind of, I think, vaguely agreed that uh, as it stands at the moment, the, the current lever of scarcity that artists are able to use is, looks like it's going to uh, continue, as David called it, the revenge of the blockchain. Um, but is there another world? Is there another world where the idea of the art world as it currently exists, which serves a tiny, tiny portion of the population and is like a market, is there another world where we somehow manage Mural somehow manages um, to make everybody patrons of the art. Is it a possible model? Um, and you can't answer for very long because there is wine next door.
4: Yes, that's it. No. Uh, yeah, no. I think it is. And and to get back to this gentleman's question, you know, I think what Mural is trying to do in in a large way is create almost like an iTunes store, but for art, right? And that kind, of democ- you know, that kind of widening of the scope of people who can partake in um, the, the art world, I think, is a, is a huge step forward towards the democratization of art cons- consumption in general. So, yeah, I think that is a new world. I think it is a new model. I think it, it bodes well for artists.
2: Percentage po- po- Possibility. Thank you very much, Mr. Carriao, <laughs> Isabel. Um, I'm going to pick up on the uh,
3: young woman's uh, question about who, who makes the rules for what art gets picked, um, who are the taste makers. And I'm going to say that um, there are hundreds of thousands of communities that are now available to us on the internet. And there is not one notion of good taste um, it, you, can, you can find a community of artists on the internet that are exclusively painting fairies and uh, unicorn pegasuses, and they have a thriving community. Take me to it. So you, it, you, you, no matter what kind of art you're into, you can find a community like that on the internet, and if Mural could become a platform, where communities could approach you and say, we want our community to be able to have art on this device, and you made that available to them, then yes, everybody in the world could have art that they liked on a a mural.
2: Percentage probability. 100%. Thank you. Finally, oh, you got it back. (laughs) Mr. Aggie
0: uh i would like to echo the um sentiments of i think this gentleman here i think the um the notion of uh, a collaboration between patrons and curators i think is a really in- interesting one where the, i don't think the uh, the removal of the curator is uh, is is the goal or the objective i think it is important that there are people who are experts who know what they're looking for they know how to tease uh tease great work out and how to encourage artists to to go down certain routes and you know, to push them in certain directions. On the other hand, I absolutely uh, I really look forward to the idea of a democratized uh, world where we as the uh, custodians, the consumers, the beneficiaries, the, uh, the, the almost, I don't know, the canvases of, of, the, of the art itself have a significant say and uh, the work reflects our views and our values and you know, hopefully a world of empathy behalf of all
2: artists. That is a beautiful thought to end this panel on. And I'm going to spoil it by repeating the question about Spotify for logistical reasons. (laughs) (laughs) There was one question which was um, about, is mural similar to Spotify model? Sorry, Tony, but that was lovely. all it just remains for me, <laughs> remains for me to say thank you very much uh, to Eric, to Isabel, um, and to Tony, and to all of you for coming out on a Friday night. Um, there's lots more conversations to be had, so head on through to the gallery, explore the art, and um, talk to your heart's contents. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this 9-2Y program. For more information, visit 92y.org. This program is copyright 2018 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.